I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City. COVID-19 has impacted how we socialize and work and move people around. The pandemic has also disrupted how materials and goods get manufactured and delivered. Before 2020, many of us probably didn't think in great detail about how toilet paper, medical masks, or all-purpose flour makes it onto our shelves. I know I certainly wasn't thinking about the price of lumber or where the world's shipping containers get stored. But as the virus spread and borders closed and trade agreements changed and panic buying ensued, we started to see significant shocks to our supply chains. This episode is all about, you guessed it, supply chains. How do they work? Why do they matter? What makes them vulnerable? What harms did they cause? And how can we make them more resilient and better for our communities? Martin Danilek, assistant professor at the University of Nottingham and researcher of logistics, shares his expertise. Let's dive in. My name is Martin Daniluk. I'm an assistant professor in geography at the University of Nottingham in England. And I study um, a field called logistics and supply chains and the impacts that they have on workers and communities. Great. Okay, so yeah, let's let's dive into supply chains. Um, maybe 20, 22 months ago or so, it, some folks might know what it is, maybe not the general population. It's obviously a much more prominent issue through the pandemic. So maybe let's just kick it off. If you could uh, describe what a supply chain is um, and why it matters for those that aren't familiar with the concept. Yeah, sure. So a, pl- a supply chain very simply is the kind of system or network of activities, um, people, entities, and resources that are needed to supply a good or a service to a customer. So we can think about it as the kind of steps that are required to get that product to the customer. And obviously, um, in today's world, that's a very complex uh, chain that Mm -hmm. includes a sort of wide range of activities and steps involved. So we can think about um, from the very beginning, you know, extracting raw materials from the earth through processes like mining or fishing, right, or harvesting crops, Um, transforming those materials into parts or into finished products, right, through manufacturing Mm -hmm. processes, Um, all the movement and transport that happens along the way, both moving raw materials, but also moving parts and moving finished products, the assembly that happens, Um, other things like, you know, packaging and labeling those um, those products. Um, increasingly, a lot of companies are including in their understanding of the supply chain activities like marketing, right? Um, phone, okay. Customer service, um, sometimes even like recycling or the kind of post-purchase activities like waste mm-hmm. disposal um, can be thought about as part of the supply chain. And then because you have such a range of different activities or functions involved, um, you obviously have a range of um, organizations and people who right. make up the supply chain as well. And they may include, you know, various groups of workers, um, producers, vendors or suppliers, um, a whole range of transportation companies, um, you know, like shipping carriers or uh, truck companies, um, rail companies and so on, warehouses and distribution centers, retail stores, right? So there's all these different entities that are responsible for um, carrying out those activities along the supply chain. Mm-hmm. There's a long history um, to the kind of modern supply chain as we know it today that goes back, I think there's an important turning point around the uh, mid-20th century 
And modern supply chains are really closely bound up with a field of business and business management that's known as logistics. Right. Logistics, as you may know, was originally a military science. So this was basically the, the process of kind of getting supplies to the front lines of war. So it was about moving food, ammunition, equipment, vehicles to soldiers in the battlefield. And what we saw after World War II was that a lot of companies, um, especially in the US and Western Europe, started taking up some of those same concepts and uh, lessons from logistics to deal with their own challenges in getting products to customers. So you mm -hmm. saw this exchange of knowledge, sometimes personnel um, concepts and thinking between kind of military logistics and civilian or business logistics. And that kind of marked the rise of um, business logistics, or what we sometimes call supply chain management, as a really like a new field of management. Hmm. Hmm. Since I would say, you know, that, that really took off in the 1960s, but especially in like the 80s and 90s, you see logistics and supply chain management um, grow massively and start to um, take on increasingly important roles at the kind of top level of companies. So often today, supply chain managers sit at the top executive level of, of big corporations. So the kind of coordination or management of the supply chain is seen as a kind of crucial part of corporate strategies today. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of changes um, along the supply chain over the past 50, 60 years. Um, We've seen changes to physical infrastructure. Um, so the rise of container shipping, for example. Back in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, you needed a, a kind of small army of workers to unload or reload a cargo ship every time that ship um, stopped in port. That could take dozens of workers and days or weeks to kind of complete the task. So the mm -hmm. container ship and the kind of rise of this intermodal container greatly accelerated and cheapened um, that part of the transportation process. We see new technologies. Um, so companies have been pioneering you know, new models um, for kind of modeling distribution patterns and transportation decisions. It's become a lot more sophisticated in that area. We've seen um, computerized point of sale systems. Companies like Walmart were really instrumental in developing some of these technologies. They instantly feed back sales information to suppliers to kind of trigger um, okay. new production, new rounds of manufacturing, changes to regulations and rules um, like free trade agreements. Um, the US um, began deregulating its transportation industry in the 80s, and that's really drastically kind of changed the landscape of transportation. Um, and changes to management, like I said. So this idea of kind of treating the supply chain as a comprehensive, integrated system that needs to be managed as a total system and optimized to kind of maximize profits across that entire cycle of production and distribution. All of this um, has been labeled for shorthand, the logistics revolution. So a real kind of revolution mm. in the way mm. that products are made and moved and sold. And as I said, many of those changes were pioneered by large retailers like Walmart, more recently like Amazon, other technologies and other ideas came from um, the military, particularly the US military. And alongside all of that, and I think really relevant for this, you know, thinking about modern supply chains has been globalization, right? right. So the globalization right. of manufacturing. Beginning around the 1980s, we saw increasingly companies in the kind of global north offshoring and outsourcing a lot of their production activities um, to low wage countries like Mexico, 
like China, like Taiwan, more recently to places like India and Bangladesh. So that meant that the factory or the assembly line was effectively stretched across the globe, right? You now have mm -hmm. different stages of that assembly line being carried out in different countries, often by different subcontractors, right? Different companies. Um, and, and that makes the today's supply chains incredibly sort of complex and international in, in scale and in scope. Why does this matter? I think for the second part of your question, why does this matter? Well, our lives, all of us are now kind of deeply bound up with supply chains. Yeah. Um, we are reliant on them for our sustenance, for our food, for our fuel, right? The, the energy that heats our homes or goes into our cars for um, construction materials, right? For furniture, for toys, almost everything we use comes to us via these kinds of corporate supply chains. Um, and this is really the kind of dominant way of organizing economic activity in our world today. Um, a scholar named Anna Singh has called that system supply chain capitalism to kind of signal mm -hmm. that this is the, the sort of dominant paradigm mm -hmm. in terms of mm -hmm. how our economy is organized today, how economic production is organized. This is the dominant model. So I think if we want to understand the economy today, we need to look at supply chains. We need to study supply chains. We need to think about not just how we make things, but also how we move them. And I think mm -hmm. there, an important component of that is kind of think, uh, you know, trying to be more civically engaged, right? If we care about understanding the economic systems that we participate in as consumers and the impacts that those systems have on people and on environments um, in other places, um, it behooves us to kind of learn something about supply chains. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, you know, to think about, I mean, interesting and mind boggling to think about the complexity that you've just described sort of at a, at a high level. And then you just think about any particular, you know, the cup I'm holding right now or how the heck that made it to my desktop. Um, this it's yeah, a, a kind of magic almost. And one of the things that's interesting about um, city life in many ways is so many things are disconnected uh, from the hinterland, the, the, that's that, the city benefits from. And so the disruption that we saw through supply chains, um, through the, through the pandemic, um, and it continues, um, you know, as, as we speak, um, you know, that, that disruption, that shock to the system, um, made people more aware, um, which is always a, a good thing because, you know, you would just take it all for granted. Um, so when we think about lessons learned that the, the shock, the disruption that COVID created, um, in supply chains and, and city life. Um, you know, what are some of the key lessons that we can, we can pull from that? Yeah, I think you've already signaled one of them, John, which is the, the sort of incredible, almost, um, inscrutable complexity of <laughs> supply chains, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, I study these things, that, that's my focus. And I, I don't even dare to kind of venture on, you know, the nature of a supply chain for a particular product because it's very right. difficult to make generalizations, right? About yeah. supply chains for all products. There are people who focus on, you know, specific sectors of the economy who wouldn't even dare to venture to make mm. generalizations, right? About um, all supply chains. It really varies by product, by where you live, by where it's being made. And there's so much um, diversity and so much complexity in today's supply chains. And I think we've seen that it's really been laid bare by the, the impacts of the pandemic. 
early on, of course, you know, we saw insufficient supplies of PPE, right? Personal protective mm. equipment, medical equipment, like gloves, like masks, like plastic gowns. And part of the problem was the way that, um, today's supply chains have been organized has left very few inventories, very, very low stocks um, for companies to draw on if there's a disruption or there's a crisis. So is, is that, is that that kind of just in time concept? Yeah. Yeah. This is exactly the idea just in time production, which was kind of pioneered by Japanese automakers in the 1950s and around the 1980s became sort of adopted. You saw increasingly by American companies and now increasingly by corporations, um, large corporations, especially around the Mm. globe, um, rely on these kind of just in time uh, supply chains. And the logic there is that if you minimize your inventory, so you're not holding stocks of products at various points along the chain, you're reducing costs in a number of ways. So you're reducing warehousing costs and storage costs. Obviously Mm. you need to, you know, pay rent on warehouse space if you want to have those stocks sitting there. You need to keep the lights on and the heat's on, the heat on. You need to have security, right? And workers there to kind of stock and unstock those shelves. Um, so there's all kinds of costs associated with holding inventories in storage. Companies have become very adept at minimizing those costs um, and through these kind of just-in-time production chains. But what that means is that um, supply chains are increasingly fragile and vulnerable. Okay. And that's really what I think the the pandemic has laid bare, um, is our kind of extreme interdependence as societies and as countries in this age of kind of so-called free trade, right? Or or very high level um, international trade. These systems are so fragile. There's such little excess inventory. In some sectors, um, uh, companies are holding literally only 15 minutes worth of inventory. So there's enough wow. inventory wow. sitting on the stock to manage 50, a 15 minute disruption. After that, they're going to run out. So the margin for error or for delay is incredibly tight. And that means that one small delay or one small disruption can really knock the entire chain off kilter. It can bring mm. upstream and downstream operations to a halt. We saw this, I think, illustrated really beautifully, um, beautifully is maybe not the right word for it, but <laughs> with the, the case of the, the container ship, the Ever Given, that was stuck in the Suez right. Canal this spring, right? One ship stuck in the wrong place at the wrong time managed to delay the movement of hundreds of other vessels, holding up billions of dollars worth of goods and creating these backlogs of cargo traffic that are only now beginning to be fully resolved. Mm-hmm. We're now in October, November, right? So I think the pandemic has really highlighted the vulnerability of these systems that we rely on, the kind of speed at which a single event, a single disruption can have these kind of knock-on effects um, in circulation systems across the world. I think that the other kind of big lesson learned here is that behind all those systems are real people. Yeah, And we saw this you know, early on in the pandemic with this kind of language of essential workers here in the UK, they were called key workers, right? In, a, in an age of, you know, cloud computing, one-click delivery, you know, next day shipping apps that can track our deliveries and so on, we, it's easy to kind of fall into the temptation of thinking that these systems that we rely on to provide us with goods are you know, highly robotized or automated. Um, you know, we use this ethereal kind of language like cloud computing to kind of describe these systems. Where I live in the UK, you increasingly see these kind of neighborhood um, 
parcel drop boxes that you okay. can use yep. to kind of pick up your parcels or return them, right? If you want to send them back. So you don't have to interact with a, with a delivery person at any point. Um, all of this looks very kind of high tech and smooth and streamlined, but of course, behind the scenes, you know, is a vast army of people who are working along the supply chain to make those products, to move those products. And um, during the pandemic, part of the crisis that we've seen has been the kind of crisis of human labor um, that's mm. operating behind the scenes. You can think about people like seafarers, right, on board um, cargo vessels who leave their families for weeks or months at a time um, to kind of work in these kind of arduous conditions on board, on board ships. Um, you can talk, think about warehouse workers, which have been um, subject to a number of COVID outbreaks, right? During the pandemic, we've seen Amazon warehouses and other, other companies' warehouses become sort of super spreader sites in many cases um, and have to kind of shut down operations in a few cases. Truck drivers who face really dire working conditions. Um, a lot of truck drivers today are paid by the load. So just like an Uber driver, they're designated mm -hmm. independent contractors. And that means they face incentive to kind of drive faster, work longer hours, right? Take on dangerous yeah. work, not repair their trucks and so on. Retail clerks, delivery drivers, people doing things like Uber Eats. Here in the UK, we have Deliveroo, right? These riders, um, bike riders who are often kind of filling that what's called the last mile of delivery, that right. kind of final part, especially in urban centers that is been so challenging and expensive for logistics companies to deliver to has increasingly been filled by this sort of reserve army of gig workers who are desperate for employment and will often accept very low wages in order to deliver um, products and food that kind of last mile. Um, so I think all of those people along the supply chain have been made visible in ways that um, they weren't necessarily before. And it's forced us to kind of reckon with um, the treatment of those people and the mm -hmm. conditions that they, that they endure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so in, in your writing, uh, you refer to this concept that was really, it really stood out for me because it had, I had never heard anything like it. The idea of the violence of logistics um, and one of the th the ideas that's surfacing through um, the season already is this idea of COVID as uh, accelerant, but also as magnifier. So maybe you could speak to um, just that concept of the violence of logistics. I think there's there's certain there's relevance to what you just talked about, and then um, just that magnifying. Um, impact that it has that these 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 workers are more visible um and and what you think that could mean uh you know moving forward in our in our communities mm -hmm. great question um so this idea about the violence of logistics or the violence of goods movement i think i need to give credit here to um, a geographer named deborah cowan who kind mm. of wrote a really important book um called the deadly life of logistics which kind of tries oh, okay. to trace the various ways that our systems of goods movement inflict harm. And I think we've known for a long time um, about the conditions in global sweatshops, right? People like Naomi Klein back in the mm -hmm. 80s and 90s were doing investigative journalism, going into, maybe not herself going into sweatshops, but at least doing kind of deep dives in the research to try to understand what are the working conditions um, under which people toil in these kind of sweatshops, these mm -hmm. people who produce goods in the kind of global factory that we live in today. What I think has gotten missed out of that story a little bit is the story of how goods are moved, right? And the conditions in which people work 
um, in the transportation and logistics system and the conditions also of communities who live in the pathways of the logistics system, Mm. who are also paying um, some of the kind of unpaid costs of our products in the, in the form of air pollution, right? Disease, um, various kinds of health impacts associated with living near truck freeways or major shipping ports and things like that. So there's all kinds of costs um, that economists refer to as externalities, right? That Mm -hmm. are not included in the price tag of our products, but are borne by third parties along the way. And I think if we study logistics and study the supply chain, those externalities become um, impossible to ignore in many cases. And they're borne both by workers and by communities. And also, of course, by the natural environment, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Shipping Mm -hmm. is a major contributor to climate change. Um, It's a very dirty industry um, that has been very slow to kind of clean up its act. Um, This this entire system is heavily reliant on fossil fuels. So a major contributor to climate catastrophe. And in many cases, it's off the books of countries' carbon um, emissions accounting. So it's not included in their kind of climate pledges. So um, there are multiple problems, right, with this system that we currently have for moving goods. I think more work needs to be done to try to expose, try to expose some of the violence and the harm that logistics and shipping um, are having on workers and communities and the environment. And I think we face um, some increasingly difficult decisions, as you said, um, for the future about how to kind of rethink or reconstruct those systems in ways that are more humane, more just, less harmful, um, more sustainable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the present moment um, with COVID has forced a bit of a reckoning in terms of exposing some of that injustice and that harm that happens along the supply chain. It's also, um, as you say, accelerated. I think not only the injustice and the harm, but also some of the fight back, right? Some of the organizing and activism around supply chain issues. We've seen recent efforts to unionize Amazon warehouse workers in places like Bessemer, Alabama. So they had a kind of organizing drive. It was, um, as far as I know, the kind of first major attempt to unionize Amazon warehouse workers um, in North America. It did fail, but they face, you know, a really formidable opponent in Amazon who, who pulled out kind of all the stops to prevent that effort from succeeding. I think the point here is that even when this system, the supply chain is working normally, it's in a kind of crisis, right? And it's right. inflicting right. harm all the time. And we focus on, we focus attention on it when things go wrong, when the water doesn't come out of the tap, when the ship gets clogged in the canal, right? When there's a major delay or backlog at the port, when the, when the shelves are empty at the store, this is when we stop and think about it. But even when it's working, quote unquote, normally, there are people who are being impacted all the way along the chain. My hope is that um, COVID and the kind of inequalities and injustices that it's laid bare will accelerate um, not only our kind of awareness of those harms, but also some of the resistance to those harms and hopefully some models for alternatives for rethinking how we might organize our supply chains and our economies um, differently. Mm-hmm. I should say, you know, not surprisingly, the, the, the people who suffer those harms tend to be disproportionately um, poor people and people of color, right? That when right. you look at yeah. who are the communities living near major ports, who are the precarious workers who are made to work these kind of long hours picking products off the shelves in, in warehouses and so on. 
um, these, these facilities tend to site in um, marginalized and vulnerable um, uh, communities to take advantage of kind of economic desperation in many cases. So um, they are costs that are not born equally. They're not evenly distributed, right? They are mm -hmm. unevenly distributed and they're, they tend to be borne by people who are already marginalized and vulnerable um, in various ways. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of scope here for change and rethinking these systems. Um, it's not what I specialize in in my research, but I, I am trying to kind of push us in that direction about how we might reimagine supply chains and do things differently. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting that when you think about the uh, supply chain capitalism uh, and the inherent, almost unimaginable momentum that that, that carries, um, but on the other side of that coin, the fragility that you that you spoke of, I mean, just one ship, right? One ship, and that's all it takes, let alone any, you know, a global pandemic, increasing climate, climate impacts, you know, those kinds of things. So it was interesting in, in, um, in your writing, the, the highlight that that fragility can be a really interesting leverage point uh, to force change. If, if something's that, if something's that powerful, you can't fight it. But if it's that fragile, there's probably a lot more intervention points that one port can shut down or what have you that can, that can have, you know, rip, literally ripple effect effects throughout the, the globe. So that's, it's really interesting that the, that local, if a local intervention happens there, often local interventions stay local, but it has this global impact potentially. So attention and action can happen quickly to address those issues. Yeah. And this is absolutely a product of the extreme, again, the kind of extreme interdependence and interconnectedness yeah. of our contemporary supply chains. Um, the way in which we are so kind of deeply connected with um port workers in places like Ningbo, China, right? Factory workers in places like Mexico, um, communities in places like Panama, where a lot of this shipping traffic moves through. Mm -hmm. um, our lives are really deeply bound up with the lives of people across the globe in ways that, um, to, to an extent, that they had not been before. Mm -hmm. I think companies are also starting to understand some of these risks and these vulnerabilities. Of course, you know, there have been efforts to kind of securitize supply chains for several decades now, right? The, this idea of like supply chain resilience or right. supply chain security um, is a fast growing field. And so there have been attempts to secure these systems of provision against all kinds of disruption, whether that's a natural disaster, a pandemic, um, a labor strike, right? A, a, a blockade, um, some human caused, right? Some more kind of environmental. But I think companies today with the pandemic and the sort of massive upheaval that it has caused are facing bigger choices about how to fundamentally structure their supply chains. And I think the right. big trade-off that they are looking at is, being, is between risk and resilience. So mm. in recent decades, companies have pursued increasingly kind of risky um, supply chain models. This is, as you say, the, the just-in-time production model where inventories are minimized, right, in order to reduce carrying costs, reduce labor costs, and all of that save cost, saves money in the short run. But what it does is it erodes your capacity for resilience or the ability to kind of recover quickly from a disruption. Um, and resilience means bigger stockpiles, more workers, yeah. more redundancy in supply networks, higher costs. This is a, a costlier strategy for companies. 
And in most cases, those costs will be passed on to consumers, right, in the form of mm -hmm. higher prices. So if companies do decide to decide to make some of those shifts towards more resilient supply chains, we will likely see prices go up. Um, I don't know if it's clear if companies are going to move in that direction or not yet. I think some of them are still making those decisions, still trying to weigh up the kind of um, implications of those different models and different strategies. So I think it's, it's in a way it's too early to say, but I do think there are important trade-offs there in terms of how supply chains are organized and how they might look. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it'll be interesting too, you know, there's the, the, the corporate response, but then the consumer response, if they've seen the, the fragility in the system, what kind of choices uh, or demands they make in their local economies to, you know, bolster those. So there's more offerings, uh, you know, you can't compete with an entire global marketplace on everything, but certainly, um, you know, it would be interesting to see as, as community, you know, as, as we come out of the pandemic, um, what kinds of expectations or demands that consumers have because they've seen, you know, we all remember the toilet paper battles and all those kinds of things in the supermarkets. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that again. So it'll be interesting on the consumer side what, what emerges as well. Yeah, there was this you know fascinating and in many ways quite beautiful moment early in the pandemic where we saw the rise of these kind of mutual aid networks, right? I don't mm -hmm. know if in, in your mm -hmm. community, um, in my neighborhood, you saw groups of residents getting together to help each other with provisions, with supplies, with care work, with various kinds of tasks um, that were typically outsourced or maybe even offshore, right? Mm -hmm. And you saw people getting together in much more direct ways to build kind of very localized economies in ways that I don't think we've seen in decades. Um, after mm -hmm. decades of kind of stretching that factory line around the world, you saw this remarkable kind of relocalization mm -hmm. of economies and of production systems. I think since then, obviously, the, the tendency has been towards a kind of re-globalization of supply chains of, as companies have adapted, as supply chains have recovered, although arguably they're still in kind of deep crisis. Um, as the kind of worst uh, restrictions of the lockdowns have been lifted, um, we've been able to return to, quote, normal times, right? Um, but I think there was this moment there that showed us uh, what might be possible in a, in a drastically reimagined um, mode of organizing our economies. Um, mm -hmm. One that is far more accountable to people around us, one that is far more localized, um, arguably, one that is uh, much lighter in terms of its impacts on the earth. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, again, there are always trade-offs in terms of different scales, right? How, at what scale do you organize your supply chain? And there are questions to be asked there. I don't want to presume that kind of local things are inherently better than global things, right? I think that's a common trap that we fall into. Um, but certainly there are benefits um, to thinking about our supply chains in much more immediate and, and local ways as we mm -hmm. do during the pandemic. Yeah, it's a shame it, it, I think it, that, that's, that that spirit has been lost. For sure, for sure. And the, yeah, the, the, my biggest worry ac across so many fields and sectors and ways of living and working is just the uh, an unthoughtful slingshot back as opposed to what are the lessons that we can pull out of it. And, you know, so with, with supply chains, you know, the, the, the sort of default that local is better, as you say, like, you know, there's a, there's a centuries long um, globalization and, you know, trying to find 
the cheapest, best things from other corners of the world, but the just to understand that local solutions provide some redundancy in the, into the system, thereby making the overall system more resilient, you know? So it's not a, a, an either or a replacement necessarily, but um, augmented to make the whole thing less fragile, make your community less fragile um, as a, as a opportunity and a lesson from, from the hardships that, uh, that were faced. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think the other benefit of localizing our supply chains is that it forces us to confront face to face the human and ecological impacts of our economic activity. When our supply chains are global, right? A lot of those impacts are pushed to other places far, far away that we will never see. For sure. And companies have a, a great vested interest in making sure that we don't see those workers in, in the warehouses, that we don't see the kind of mining operations that are in places like Chile that are responsible for our batteries and our phones and things like that, that mm -hmm. we don't see the kind of factory conditions of workers in places like Shenzhen and China. Um, I think if we think about relocalizing our economies, all of a sudden it makes us far more accountable to each other. Um, mm -hmm. in terms of how our economic activity is organized. And I think that can be an important incentive for um, working to minimize the harms of, of our economic activity. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a, that's a great place to, to leave it. And so uh, we'll just ask I have one more question for you that we ask everybody uh, who comes on the pod. Uh, can you share a city that you love and why you love it? Yeah. A city I love is Montreal. Uh -huh. And the reasons I love it, I, I think are a little bit nebulous even to me, but every time I go there, it's sort of uh, grasps this kind of romantic spirit in me. I don't, yeah. know, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to uh, to explain that in a, in a more kind of relatable way, but um, it, there's something kind of magical about the city of Montreal for me. Uh, I didn't visit it until I was uh, probably 25 years old, something like that. Okay. So I, I was fairly old coming to it. I know a lot of people who kind of went there um, for university in their undergraduate years and just had this sort of incredible kind of eye-opening experience. Um, so I came at it a little bit late, but I still feel like I've found all these gems throughout the city, the kind of setting of the city around around the park and the mountain, um, the, the kind of uh, street life that you see, people like interacting on the streets. I think it's unparalleled certainly within Canada and I think across North America. Um, so I think it's a, a special place for me and obviously for many others. Terrific. Thanks for joining us for our fourth episode of the What's Next series. We're gonna take a holiday break for a little bit, but join us in the new year as we continue to explore what's next for our cities. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.